and welcome again to another fascinating uh, class in the bunker. Uh, as always, thanks for being here. Uh, appreciate all of you uh, uh, hitting like and then hitting share because, man, it does make a difference in terms of people that are reaching out. So like and share and give us some feedback about uh, what, you're, what you're seeing. So uh, we're going to go down an interesting road uh, today. Uh, as, as the children of Israel are trying to grapple with what they think about Moses, uh, it's interesting that they're not coming into these discussions with Moses, this guy that just showed up, uh, without some kind of preconceptions. Uh, and so each of us have what I'm going to call, our, what another author has called, our, our box and trying to leave the lid off of our box. And in this case, it's our profit box. Um, now, in order to get into that, let, let, let me just kind of ask a series of questions. I'm going to have you react to some things that I've come across just in the last week uh, and see what your answer with that would be. Here's the first one. It was a recent Twitter post. Mormons really think they're the first and only religion to have the concept of forever families. Really, they're the only religion, religion that has invented a God who separates families because of a cup of coffee. Now, you might ask how you would answer that, how you would respond to somebody that says, will God really separate families after this life because they were drinking coffee. That, that's an interesting. Kind of let that one roll through your head. Okay. Here's another question that uh, I, I came across. Uh, Netflix has been uh, running the, the, the show of the, the Mormon murders and the forgeries of uh, Hoffman. And the question is, because here's a picture of Hoffman with President Kimball, Tanner, Romney, the first presidency at the time, and President Hinckley that was there as well, and Boyd K. Packer. The question is, if these guys were prophets, how come they didn't know Hoffman was, was selling them forgeries? Wouldn't a prophet have known they were being frauded? by this and and for some it kind of shook their testimony a little bit that I expect that a prophet would know a fraud when he ran across it how come they missed this okay take a second how would you respond if somebody asked you that question okay question number three here's here's one that I that I sometimes have show up in, in my office as a counselor uh, and I call it bargaining with God. And it sounds something like this. I really want to have a baby. And we just can't have a baby. Now, therefore, they pray to say, Heavenly Father, if you will give us a baby, it's a righteous desire, I will read the scriptures more, I will go to church more, I will fulfill my callings, I will do, come follow me, I will, I will, I will. Uh, I need my son to go on a mission. Uh, therefore, I will do all of those kind of things. In other words, I'm going to bind the Lord with my 
stepped up righteousness in return for the fact that you will give me the things that I'm looking for. Uh, and they are righteous desires. It's not like I'm looking for a million dollars. I simply want my husband to find a job. <laughs> I simply want my mom to beat cancer. Therefore, God, if you will do this, I will do this. And we get into this bargaining and negotiating with God. And hopefully we put enough money into the bank that we can pull out this spiritual deposit and get the thing that we really want. Take a second. How would you respond to someone who says, I've been doing all these things and nothing's happening and God just isn't answering me? Well, in each case, and I've seen people specifically leave the church over these three things that we just talked about. And I believe that behind that is, a, is an underlying problem that sometimes we miss as to why it is that uh, these things are a struggle and maybe why it is that even, even as you're watching this that you have some questions about these things or other things and, and let me tell you where I think the source of some of that struggle comes from. Um, maybe the best way to uh, describe it, this source of misunderstanding something about God and prophets and how they work. Um, we start off with a very, very simple gospel of Jesus Christ. If we simply read the New Testament, you can see what he's teaching. You get a sense of his love and concern for all of his children and everything that he's doing for them and it just seems to be straightforward love and love unfeigned uh, and and being able to just be so filled with that that you are transformed by that and you want to be like Jesus and he just says follow me do what I do okay so we start with this beautiful simple gospel of Jesus Christ now Here's where it gets a little bit more complicated. Because the, the, there are certain ordinances uh, and responsibilities that go with this gospel of Jesus Christ, there will generally be some kind of organization that is set up to administer some of those ordinances, like ordinances of the temple for exaltation. Currently, we call that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that church is going to uh, run on what, what it understands, what the prophets and leaders have been told, and the revealed knowledge up to that point. What do they know? How do they handle things? How do they go about administering the gospel of Jesus Christ? What needs to happen there in the day-to-day -day activities of the followers of Christ inside this organization. So this church, for us as members of the church, this forms the window through which we look at the gospel. Now, some of our other uh, wonderful brothers and sisters in other faith traditions have a much different organizational look and they too are looking in through their window, their perceptional window, at that gospel and they are living it and obeying it and striving within it based on what that window looks like 
and what they hear inside the, that organization that helps that particular group of people and whatever light and knowledge it is that they have. Now, part of this becomes really important because part of what we've talked about in the last couple of weeks is um, the fact that we are responsible for uh, temples and temple work and those kind of things within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints doesn't mean that we have all the truth. It means that there is truth and wonderful people with knowledge and understanding and ideas in other faith traditions. And as Joseph Smith said, bring all the truth you can. And if the Methodists have this and the Catholics have this, and Joseph was always grabbing from all different areas to say, they have some truths I didn't yet have, and I will recognize it and bring them home. And we will bring to them what we have in terms of our understanding perhaps of the celestial kingdom and exaltation and temples. Okay, So every church then is going to have that revealed knowledge to them. They're going to look at the gospel through their particular prism and they're going to respond to it. Now, here's where it gets just one more step complicated. That church in any given moment sits within a very larger culture. The, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1830 lived in a different culture than the church in 1930. And when we get to two, uh, 2030, this Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will be living and responding to the problems and situations and additional revealed light and knowledge in 2030. And when that happens, the people that are going to make up that culture are going to be the men and women who will be the administers, uh, or bishops and Relief Society presidents and general authorities and they will look through their window of their culture at the church that, in, that at that moment will be administering and taking care of the needs of the people striving to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in essence, what happens a lot of times is that if you'll see the people of the culture and the light and knowledge that they have interacting with the church that has a history of past cultural moments, current cultural moments, and Joseph Smith said, and everything that will be revealed down the road, uh, and we're up against that, and through those perceptual windows, we'll look at the gospel. I promise you that uh, 30 years from now there will be people looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ a bit differently than we look at today. Not because the gospel has changed, but because the culture and the problems that they face and the kind of people that they're dealing with are going to look and try and draw from the gospel things that meet the needs of that particular time. And then 30 years later, different story altogether. So I think oftentimes what happens is that 
uh, when sometimes people misunderstand something about uh, you guys believe in a God that would separate families on the other side of the veil based on the fact that they're right now drinking a cup of coffee. And we would say, no, that's not true. It's just not true. Now, I'm not sure that the answer might not have been just a little bit different in 1930 or 1940. They may have been, taken a much more literal view of saying, we don't think people change very much on the other side of the veil and they were rebellious enough to be drinking coffee now so they'll be rebellious on the other side. And yes, their actions now will tell you where they're going to be. Um, and, and I think we're, we're taking a look at it and saying, eternity's a long time. And if we're going to give Jesus a long time to work with people, I think he brings them home. I think he gets them. Um, but the understandings come in terms of how they watch the church dealing with the gospel, and then they watch people inside the culture, how they struggle with things like money uh, and social issues of the time, and they become offended, not because of the gospel, but because of the, 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 the very human people that they watch uh, running and coming from and participating in and swimming the culture in which they live. Let me give you an example where I think that really jumps out. And that is when we're trying to understand prophets and what they do and how they think and what they're supposed to know and what they do or didn't do. So sometimes in our understanding of prophets, especially where we're younger, we start with a very small box. We're, I'm going to draw on some of the things that we talked about uh, last time, uh, drawing from some of the writings of Richard McLaren, who's done a, a good job of understanding this uh, faith growth within stages. So we start off in something with like simplicity. And we may simply look at its prophets right or wrong. The prophets are like fax machines from God and every, and every word they speak is the truth and you just simply follow them because they're always right and we have this and in simplicity it's just all or nothing. You're either following the prophet or you're not and there's nothing else matters which means you're either obedient or you're not or you're good or you're not or you're us or you're them. And we talked about how simplicity just really polarizes everybody. And there's some people that just kind of live their life in basic simplicity and are very comfortable inside a very small box. Now, some of those people, when I said other people have truth that maybe we don't, are saying, no, 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 no. Truth, we have all the truth. Nobody else has anything. You know, that's, that's kind of threatening. Now what happens over time though is that as we grow we place that simplicity box into a larger box we call complexity. And that is where we become a little bit more zealous in, in the way that we approach the world. We become a little bit more dogmatic and we can respond to people because we have at our heart this sim simplicity idea and because of that uh, we're going to protect and we're going to step out and we're going to interact with people that maybe don't 
think that prophets are all that and we and it's our job to protect that and be the watchman on the tower to make sure and look for anybody that begins to defame or misunderstand and we're going to step in on social media or wherever uh, over a Thanksgiving dinner and tell people you know you're either following prophets or not and here's why and we have much more information when we live in complexity and we have an orthodoxy that drives us uh, forward okay now the problem with simplicity and complexity is that they are small boxes and so for instance let me give you an example what happens to somebody that perhaps grows up in a very fundamentalist church who has their simplicity is we are the only church and Mormons are a cult and Mormons are these kind of zombie people that just mindlessly follow their prophet us good them bad and then and so then they come into contact with Mormons and in complexity it's like we've got to bring you to Jesus because you're so lost and we're going to bring you home and we're going to point out all the reasons where you changed the Bible and you took words out of the Bible and Joseph Smith was a plagiarizer and na 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 and then what happens within that box when they actually live next to Mormons and it turns out they're good people and maybe they're not as crazy as maybe they were believing inside that box and they seem to be happy they shouldn't be happy they're in a cult and they seem to be good people and honest and seem to love their family and they keep talking about Jesus Christ and we know they're not Christian so what are they doing talking about Christ because that doesn't fit with what I was taught watching grainy little films in my basement uh, as Ann Coulter once said, uh, talking about Mitt Romney, where she says, the only thing I know about Mormons is what I watched in youth groups sitting in a basement watching little grainy films. And it was like, wow, they're the devil. And then she finds out sometimes they're better people than what I was taught. And when they start running outside of that, that's when the, the, you begin to run into a new problem and that is is that when you've got to take that complexity you place it in a place called perplexity and that's doubt suddenly you don't know you're not as sure it doesn't quite make as much sense and now there is you've got to deconstruct some of the things that you believed I think we talked about this a little bit last time when we start to see this in terms of profits and we start off with an idea of saying it's simply prophets right or wrong and they never make mistakes and I'm going to defend those prophets and then and then we hear statements like Bruce R. McConkie after uh, the the revelation on the priesthood ban had come in 1978 and the priesthood was a, was extended to all worthy male members and again Bruce R. McConkie goes to BYU to the religion faculty and he says everything we have said on this topic is now wrong and we were wrong about this and what I wrote about this was wrong and some of the simplicity people said prophets aren't supposed to ever be wrong but somehow 
15 people in the temple kept gathering together in holy places and saying, no, it's not time yet. We're not ever going to give black men the priesthood. And then the revelation comes and it turns out that all of that zeal and complexity of defending those prophets that they that they had received further light and knowledge and they adapted and got out of their own simplicity way and said we now know more and we're going to move forward now they may have had their own set of perplexity that says wow I always thought it was this way now it turns out it's this way I've got to think differently And this is where the beauty, as we were talking about last time, of doubts come in because sometimes those doubts propel us to greater research and prayer and inspiration as we deconstruct what we thought. Now that's also dissonance and that's also a little bit frightening to start deconstructing, tear down some of those walls and the things you constructed because as you're rototilling your beautiful garden and saying now it's just torn up and I haven't yet built anything here and then you get this period of time that says wow our house looks awful because all the, all the flowers are gone well finally what we're, what we're trying to get to here and I think what we're going to find that the children of Israel had to begin their understanding of God and their understanding of Moses and how prophets work was that they had to get to a place though of what we would say I've got to take that perplexity and ultimately as I listen peacefully and calmly and gather more information and put it together I now begin to reconstruct all of that into a place that we'll call harmony which, uh, as Richard McLaren has said, this is where at the end of kind of our deconstructing, we now begin to build something and love, deep love, ends up being the foundation of that. And it reforms how we look at these people. And it changes the way that we look at one another. And I think it would change the way that we can from a deeper, more sustaining level sustain these wonderful men and women that lead, lead the church. So in a sense, we're trying to leave the lid off. We're trying to remove, in other words, leave the box lid open so that we're open to them being able to be, to grow and, and, and have new knowledge and understanding. So if we do that, then an amazing thing happens. We begin to say this, that prophets and church leaders are inspired, well-seasoned, as President Hinckley once described, the oxygenarians, you know, uh, I I think he was asked on 60 Minutes, how do you get by with, you know, 80-year-old men, you know, running the the church? And he says, well, we're well-seasoned. And we've been through a lot of things in our lives to be able to, to do this. Uh, church leaders are inspired, well-seasoned men and women. They are. And because of that, uh, what we start to reconstruct is we, we place that, that ability on them.
Now, with that said, though, now in this reconstruction of prophets, brothers and sisters, they get to be fallible, as are we. Prophets get to make mistakes. Prophets get to say, we think we're going to do something kind by not uh, baptizing uh, the kids of uh, those that are in same-sex unions. We don't want to cause conflicts in the family. And then on an incredible sense of humility, 18 months later saying, that was wrong. We missed on that. And we're going to revert back. We're changing that policy. Within 18 months, they're fallible and they're going to recognize that they're fallible. So because of that, I believe they deserve our love, our gratitude, and our constant sustaining support for these fallible, lit-off human beings who, uh, in leaving that lid off, we recognize that they will receive ongoing revelation and inspiration and then that is different maybe different from past understandings and past teachings so often the, those attacking the church will say well, well Brigham Young said this or M McKay, President McKay said this they did and then the current church the current the current people have received additional light and knowledge that updates and may change uh, moving forward what was done in the past. Different culture, different times, different people, fallible human beings. And isn't that kind of comforting? If you think about yourself as a parent, after after 20 years of parenting, you're probably better at some parenting things than you were when that first baby was born. Aren't you glad that the Lord sees us as fallible, growing, learning people uh, and uh, an ability to change and be different over time? Okay? So, let's take this idea that uh, we recognize that they're going to change over time. Now, what, what you will watch in the book of Exodus is that Moses evolved. Moses started off not quite sure. Remember, he's the man that says to, to the Lord, you know, I'm a man who can't speak very well, and you're asking me to do this really hard thing. And I'm sure, as he was trying to explain this to the elders of, uh, of Israel, as he said, hey, I'm going to go to the Pharaoh and, and talk him into letting us go. There are probably elders in the room that looked at each other and went, um, this is the guy? Um, okay. Man, I hope the Lord knows what he's doing. Um, Aaron, keep that staff close by. Uh, he may need it if we're just going to try and go on his speaking ability. Okay. Uh, so here's what we know. Moses, for all of his weaknesses, plainly taught to the children of Israel in the wilderness, what was it he wanted more than anything? 
He sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God as he had. It's what he wanted. Now he may have looked at himself and said, I'm not sure how this guy who's slow of mouth and no man of words is going to pull this one off. I hope I learn along the way. I'm, I'm glad I've got God behind my the, the wind beneath my wings kind of thing to, to keep me going here. Okay. Now, so how did he do that? How, what do we learn from that about how prophets operate and exactly how that works? Well, we get a little bit of a hint. When, when we get, remember as after the plagues and, and all the things that happened there and the recreation, we talked about that God was recreating his people by going through and showing all of his power over the elements step by step by step by step. There was another big one coming and it would happen obviously at the Red Sea or as some scholars believe the Reed Sea and it might have been in a little different place because he came from the reeds and he was going to part the reeds. Anyway, good stuff. So we'll just say at the moment at the Red Sea we have that moment, that crisis moment. Chariots of Egypt behind children of Israel looking at the, the waves and the water right in front of them. What do we do? And, and here's the man with poor words uh, but he's got a, uh, a great staff and he's got some knowledge and some learning to do but what is, what is it that happens? When Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold the Egyptians marched after them and they were sore afraid. And here's Moses trying his best. And what, what kind of support is he getting from the peanut gallery behind him? Well, here's what he's getting. And they said unto Moses, Is this not the word that we did tell thee in Egypt? We told you so. We told you this would happen. You didn't know exactly what you were doing. We told you saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. We want to stay. We don't know anything else. You're a rabble rouser. Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. Our view ain't so great. And we're not sure. And we told you. And here's Moses trying to say, I'm trying to do the best I can here. And so does God then suddenly come down and tell him what to do with the Red Sea? No, we get a little bit of an inkling uh, in, in a revelation that was given to Oliver Cowdery. And by the way, I've always loved this picture of Oliver Cowdery because you, you look at this kind face and, and this was a man who saw John the Baptist and Peter, James, and John uh, and we have this wonderful photograph of Oliver Cowdery. To Oliver Cowdery in his early days, the Lord said this, Yea, behold, when it comes times to do things, especially in the uh, translating of the Book of Mormon, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. 
And then he could, the Lord could have said, and this is what I've done with Joseph Smith, or this is what I've done in your life over here. But look at where the Lord goes with Oliver Cowdery. Now behold, this, this mind and heart thing, this is the spirit of revelation. Behold, this is the spirit by which Moses brought forth the children of Israel through the Red Sea onto dry ground. How did Moses know what to do? He was told in his mind and in his heart to take a tremendous chance and ask for a mighty wind to come and open this up. This is how inspired, well-seasoned leaders of the church do things. And sometimes they get it right, and sometimes they get it wrong. I think the prophets, by and large, would say, now, there are some areas of our history it would have been great if we had been more transparent and let people know more clearly some of the history where we thought maybe not talking about it so much might have been okay at the moment. I think they would look at it now and certainly Elder Ballard has been one to say we did it wrong. We should have been more open. So here's our questions then. We like Oliver Cowdery are to receive guidance in the same way that Moses did at the parting of the Red Sea. So here's my question. Have you ever followed the Spirit only to find out you were wrong? Disaster strike? And you didn't quite get the bless blessings you want to? Have you ever doubted praying about it because the last time you prayed about it and followed it, the wheels fell off? And so you kind of learn from that that either I'm not listening well or God's not talking. In either case, Asking and following the Spirit is a recipe for disaster because the last time was. And we, and we struggle with that. He keeps saying, no, I'll tell you in your mind and your heart. Well, were you not talking or was I not listening? One of us. Uh, so we've got, we get that perplexity moment of doubt and say, Does, i got to reconstruct how this works and maybe how I get answers. How I get answers might be different than the way my parents got it or the way my bishop got it. Okay? My experience is that when we do that, we act in well-intentioned but a wrong direction, the Lord will consecrate those actions for our benefit. There may be some type of rescue or important lesson that comes that is taught in those moments while we're busy reconstructing our faith or our answerability or our spiritual gifts or what we expect from the Lord or from prophets. If we learn to follow the Spirit even when the results are exactly what we expected, shouldn't we afford church leaders the same benefit and give them the same leeway? Bishops, bless their heart, 
do the best they can and we work with in our counseling practice we work with a lot of bishops and there's a large difference in the way that they handle sometimes similar situation they are their people with their inspiration coming out of their culture and sometimes they're right and sometimes they miss by a bit and then they will and they will say yep you're right I shouldn't have uh, I learned from that and I'm sorry if we keep our prophet box or our bishop box closed and demand our past and current leaders to be infallible and never make a mistake then I believe if we're doing that we misunderstand everything the Lord has put in the scriptures teaching us about the fallibility of prophets because it is there from beginning to end let me finish with one last one prophet Joseph Smith he has a trip right after the dedication of the Kirtland Temple to find buried treasure in Massachusetts why they're in debt and even though the Lord said don't worry about your debts he's worried about the temple being foreclosed on and a man comes from Massachusetts that says hey there's buried treasure in this house if you just rent out the house you can dig in the basement and uh, get the money and that will be the salvation for the church well Joseph as he's growing up was pretty good at finding buried treasure he was um, and so can you, can you imagine a case where uh, the first presidency rents out a house in Massachusetts so they can dig uh, in the basement to try and find money to save the church well, that's exactly what Joseph Smith did grabs the first presidency off they go they rent the house they dig in the basement and they come up with nothing nada and <laughs> And the Lord then gives him a revelation in the midst of Joseph probably sitting there feeling his stupid so greatly. And the Lord says in section 111, I the Lord your God am not displeased with you coming on this journey notwithstanding your follies. Isn't that great? Yes, prophet of mine that was a folly yes you didn't trust me but I will consecrate your efforts I, I'm going to teach you some things while you're in Salem and while you're in Boston which he did and there were some important lessons that came out of that experience in Salem that would serve Joseph well later lessons that he could have learned another way but the Lord made no bones about the fact that this was folly and I'm sure behind it is Joseph saying, and I won't do that again, because he's got to come home and explain to Emma that they did it and they got nothing to show for it. That had to be a great moment <laughs> in time. So anyway, brothers and sisters, I, I, I bury my testimony that our, our job is to allow our profit box to continue to grow into harmony and reconstruction to see them as the wonderful well-seasoned fallible people that they are if we do that we maybe have an easier time in saying that to ourselves that we are well-seasoned but very fallible and we'll make mistakes 
and we may turn to our kids and say, we're sorry we were still learning. So keep our parent box open, please, uh, and give us some grace on this. I bear you my testimony that the Lord intends us to love and follow and serve our prophets, but also allow them to be the people that they are. I pray that we can do that, and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.